Connecticut Democrats, or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back to episode three of Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. We've got a great show this week on Labor Day weekend, so happy Labor Day to all of our listeners. Uh, this week on the show, I talked to Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont, and Dave talked to 17th State Senate District candidate George Cabrera. And as you might imagine, campaigning is kicking in high gear right now, and there's a lot of things going on with the state party as well. That's right. There are fewer than 60 days left to this election. And whether you want to help Joe Biden get elected in swing states or help on the very, very, very important local races all around the state, you can do so by going to ctdems.org, seeking out our candidates and volunteering for them individually, or fill out our volunteer form and we will be in touch to let you know how you can help out because volunteers win these elections. Um, we have a lot of great candidates, of course, and we also have a great speaker series going on right now. If you'd like to check it out, our first women speaker series featured Muthani Wambu Kral, who is a DNC uh, political and organizing director. It was a fantastic conversation. You can check out on our YouTube channel and check out our social media for information about this week's with Ava Bermuda Zimmerman, who ran for lieutenant governor right here in Connecticut. The governor of Connecticut is Ned Lamont, and he's our first guest here on Connecticrats. Okay, Governor Ned Lamont, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Michael. How's it going? Bright and early on a Thursday morning, and um, so far, Connecticut is uh, pretty safe. We're holding our own, and that's really important. If we're going to get this economy going again, people got to be safe first. Let's jump right into it. Uh, Give the listeners a state of play for Connecticut's coronavirus response. Um, I know we're seeing some good trends and seeing some concerning trends at the same time. So uh, give us a quick state of play on, on where we are, and then we can dive into some some specifics. Well, you probably remember we got hit hard as part of that greater New York metro area back in March, April. And uh, we were really worried that our ICUs, our hospital capacity, might be overwhelmed. It never was, but it got close. And we were working that. But really, over the last uh, three-plus months, we've had one of the lowest infection rates in the country, in and around 1% uh, over the last um, period of time. And that has just been invaluable for us. And that's really thanks to, um, you know, folks uh, paying attention to the mask and paying attention to the distancing, staying outside for dinner as much as they can. It's just much safer there. And uh, 1% means that UConn is open. 1% um, infection rate means that uh, K through 12, they are going to slowly open starting uh, right about now. Most of our businesses are going, opening cautiously. Thank you for that update. Um, let's, you know, you said at the beginning there, obviously Connecticut was hit hard and we were one of the first states to get hit. Uh, take us back to, you know, early March, I believe March 10th was the day that you declared uh, the civil preparedness emergency. Um, and, and a few days before that, we started to see our first few cases. Um, at what point during this did you uh, come to the realization that this was going to be a prolonged fight against COVID-19? Early. I mean, I was looking overseas. I saw Wuhan. I saw Seattle. Uh, that was very far off for Connecticut. It can't happen here. And then uh, one day I got a call. And we said we have our first infection. It's at Danbury Hospital. I went there. We really realized um, COVID is right here in our backyard. And, uh, you know, you see what's happened in the last uh, few months in Arizona and California you know, and it happened in Connecticut uh, going back in March. It, it ramped up like a hockey stick. And we realized really fast what was going on. And the first thing we had to do is we had to get the hospitals organized. 
and they were sort of competitive and been back and forth with each other over the last forever. And uh, they worked together like one for um, for the peak of that COVID crisis, which is just invaluable for us. So if Stanford Hospital is getting a little overwhelmed, Hartford Hospital is able to bring in the troops, bring in the masks, bring in some nurses, and then vice versa a few months later. And do you think Connecticut's, you know, industries, I think we found ourselves between, like you said, our hospital systems, Yale University, uh, having some great industry here in Connecticut. Do you think that lended to our preparedness and the fact that uh, for a while, and I think currently we're, we're doing pretty well compared to the rest of the country? Uh, we've got what, some of the best um, epidemiologists and other uh, scientists in the uh, country here. We've got an amazing public health system. So we've had, a, you know, Yale New Haven and UConn Health and Jackson Labs all taking the lead in terms of vaccinations, in terms of testing. You know, Michael, everybody else sends their test to the West Coast to get a process in the lab. We send it generally to a lab right here in Connecticut or right across the border. So we get our results back in a, a day in most cases. You know, if, that, if it takes you a week to get it back from California, by that time that person is infected another 50 people. Right, That's right. not happening in Connecticut. Interesting, interesting perspective there. Um, and I think, you know, the other aspect, obviously, all this besides the public health has been the impact on the economy and on and on folks' everyday lives. Um, you are a business person, a small business owner for, for most of your career. How has that experience sort of lended you as you talk to uh, businesses who have been forced to close, businesses that have been forced to cut back? Um, has that changed your perspective on um, how you've responded to this crisis? Yeah, I mean, I was running my... Um telecommunications company back during 08, 09, which was the last big crash we had. And you realize that a small business has to pay the bills and they got to keep paying for health insurance. They got to keep the electricity on and uh, small business in particular knows uh, the folks that work there. It's like family and you do everything you can to keep it together. So I, I did feel in my heart what was going on with small businesses as um, restaurants and bars and then even a retail retail they didn't close down but it was really for takeout and uh, that really hit things hard and I, I tried to reopen and I tried to have the scientists there and I tried to have uh, the best business folks there because I had to work with the business people to say how we're reopening why you've got to do it safely why you got to build the confidence of the consumers it's not simply a matter of opening up that pizza place if people don't see that the um, folks working there are wearing the mask and using the sanitizer, they're going to be less likely to go in. So we work together very closely on that. Right. And I think I think that was one of the things that set Connecticut apart in the beginning there. Um, there were a few restrictions that other states had gone for that we didn't go for. And there were a few measures that they took. Um, talk a little bit about how you viewed, obviously we had a great regional cooperation with Governor Cuomo and Governor Raimondo, um, but there were some things we did differently. Talk about how you would approach a decision where you were going to diverge from what the other regional governors were doing. For example, when it came to like keeping outdoor construction open or you know opening restaurants and stuff like that, how, how would you approach a decision where you knew you were going to be uh, doing something different, say, than Governor Cuomo? So on the front side of the pandemic, um, New York was maybe a week or two ahead of us. They got hit uh, a, you know, a couple of weeks earlier than us. But that meant that when we both decided now's the time to close down bars, because they were packed on St. Patrick's Day and uh, things were already creeping up, that gave us sort of a two-week head start on New York in terms of being on the early side. Then if you fast forward to um, you know June, for example, um, we opened up a little more promptly uh, than uh, New York did. As you point out, for example, we always kept our manufacturing open, unlike New York, and we always kept our outdoor construction open, unlike New York. 
Uh, and we did that because the manufacturing, it was a close call, but uh, we could test everybody coming in. We could make sure they're wearing a mask. We could um, shift the shifts a little bit to keep it uh, safe. And when it came to restaurants, you're right. We uh, opened up for outdoor dining primarily. We thought we could do that safely. That was probably a little easier for us to do in Connecticut than it was to do in New York. We could close down a part of a road and have the tables outside. Right, right. In- interesting. I think that that's been sort of the cool thing I've seen is I don't I don't know that people are going to want to go back to the old way of dining now that they've gone to, you know, whether it be in Stamford or, you know, where I'm from in Trumbull, you know, there's these great outdoors dining places that have popped up. And I think people really, really like that. Um, I, I finally, on the on the COVID-19 uh uh, preparedness side of things that uh, you recently extended the eviction moratorium. Um, and, and when I talk to friends on college campuses around Connecticut, this is one of the top issues that they bring up, which is that, you know, there's this impending crisis of, of, of homes, of, of, of places for folks who have lost their jobs to live. Um, do, do you see that eviction moratorium, which I believe you extended until October, uh, is potentially being lengthened out to January or February? Or do you think that um, by the time we get to October, we'll have sort of found our footing again? Well, I I certainly hope the latter. Uh, The the White House, in particular the CDC, Center for Disease Control, extended the federal moratorium uh, until the end of the year. So we'll take a look at that. Obviously, that hits landlords really hard. Landlords aren't just big, you know, big shots. They can be, um, you know, a small family landlord with five apartments. They've got to pay their rent as well. So one of the things I'd love the federal government to do as part of the next act is – provide some support for renters and landlords so that, um, you know, maybe you make half your payment through the end of the year. People have got to get in the habit of making their payments. That is an obligation, but we also know that we got a 10% of unemployment rate, so not everybody can do it. But from a health point of view, Michael, I can't have a lot of people being evicted. I can't have them going in the homeless shelters. That would be dangerous. And by the way, it's just not the right thing to do for families. Agreed, and I think I think that's an interesting idea on the uh, you know assistance to both the the owners and and the renters. Um, let's move on to a topic I think you and I uh, both really enjoy talking about. I know whenever we sort of cross paths, uh, typically it's at an event where I'm I'm there with some students, and one of the questions you always ask is you know five years from now, do you see yourselves you know the students living in Connecticut? Um, and I pulled some statistics. Now, you know my recent graduating class here at UConn, which my sister was a part of. Um, you know the top five employers were Electric Boat, Aetna, Travelers, the Hartford, and and Yale New Haven, where my sister works now. Um, what are we doing right now as the economy and our society is being so disrupted by COVID nineteen to make sure that five years from now, UConn graduates and Yale graduates and Fairfield University and, and all down the list, you know, want to stay here in Connecticut in the in that sort of post COVID economy. I think it's already happening. I mean, we've had um, tens to thousands of New Yorkers change their address to Connecticut and more young people are coming out than ever before. Let's face it, we were a little sleepy uh, over the last 10 years. And if you were young, you wanted to be down in uh, New York or San Francisco or someplace cool. And I like to think there's a little bit of Connecticut cool going on right now, just like <laughs> what you were describing, Michael, with um, some of our sleepy towns are coming to life, lots of outdoor dining. Um, you know, pretty soon there'll be a few more drinks there, and, and uh, those uh, towns are really going to be a lot more fun. I think we've realized that I'm trying to get IT and telecommunication and Wi-Fi into all of our town squares so that, um, A, you bring those to life, and B, you realize uh, maybe your job is in New York City, but you only have to be there one day a week. You can uh, do everything you want in Brooklyn, Connecticut. You can in Brooklyn, New York. We're getting 5G on Metro North. So... 
I'd like to think that um, people are taking a second look at Connecticut. And in particular, what we're doing right now um, with our workforce team is making sure those big employers come back to UConn and reintroduce themselves to students. Mm -hmm. That Edna is not a sleepy old insurance company with a bunch <laughs> of guys with facts, but actually it's the, um, it's the Amazon of insurance and everything is going online and tech. And the ways that we can reintroduce the sleepy industry to the next generation, because we really need you to bring these industries back to life. We'll be back with more from Governor Ned Lamont after Dave speaks with 17th State Senate District candidate George Cabrera. Candidate for the 17th Senate District in the state of Connecticut is George Cabrera, and he joins us here today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You bet. It's September. Can you believe it's September already? <laughs> no, it went by with a flash. It did. Like March seemed like it lasted 400, 500 days. Then after that, it has been flying by. Um, and you've been out there campaigning pretty much the whole time, have you not? Yeah, yeah. We spent the whole summer knocking on doors, making phone calls, getting our message out there. And, you know, happily, we were uh, elected 57% of the vote on primary day. And now we're uh, headed to the general election in November. That's great. And this is your second, uh, second attempt against the same opponent. So what, what do you find to be different this time around? Yeah, it's my second attempt. First attempt, uh, you know, uh, first time out and uh, we almost won. In fact, I was told that I won oh. and then found out two days later there was a recount. And uh, after about a week of that, um, we uh, came up short by 77 votes yeah. in the district. In fact, I was at a, a welcoming dinner for new candidates uh, halfway through my salad course when a Democratic lawyer brought me outside and said, we're going to have to have a recount. Go back in and pretend like nothing's wrong. <laughs> nothing's okay. wrong. It's just <laughs> not as right as it could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, you know, it was unfortunate. It was up and down. It was a roller coaster of emotions. Um, but, you know, took a breath, you know, saw my family again, waited to see if uh, Senator Logan um, maybe saw having coming so close to lose, he would change and actually start standing up for the district and have the right priorities. And unfortunately, he did not. Um, he proceeded to do things like vote against paid family leave, vote against the minimum wage bill, which would have, you know, gave thousands of people a raise in the district. Today or yesterday, or I guess this comes out in a week or so. But uh, yeah, just on September first, right? Yep, yep. He just unfortunately, you know, uh, not reflecting the values of the district and continue to do things that were not in the best interest of, of the residents of the 17th district. And I decided to do it again um, because he's just not doing the job that he needs to do, standing up for the workers and the families in the 17th. So you give some indication of what, what would be different with uh, Senator Cabrera in the 17th district seat. Um, you know, other priorities of yours? I'm certain it'll be, it would include healthcare work. What else? A absolutely. Healthcare is huge for me. Um, I have some really uh, personal experiences with this. Um, you know, my, my children were, I have twin boys. They were born premature and were at the ho in the hospital for 10 weeks. And uh, lucky for us, we had really good healthcare and, um, we're able to, you know, deal with that. The cost was astronomical. You could imagine 10 weeks of hospital care there. Thank God made it, are healthy. And um, then um, this past December, my wife, unfortunately, who's in her early 40s, um, was diagnosed with stage one colon cancer and decided to have a procedure uh, to deal with it. She's fine. The, the surgery was very successful. But, you know, I recall being in the doctor's office after we got the good news that it was successful and that the likelihood of her having this issue again was uh, almost non-existent. Uh, how many families 
um, have this happen to them and just aren't lucky enough to have the health insurance that we have. Um, and I meet people all the time who have uh, inadequate health care. They're, they're paying too much. The cost of pharmaceutical drugs are way too high. And so, you know, it's a big um, priority for me to make sure that we do everything we can to make sure that families have affordable health care, affordable uh, drugs uh, that they need to take and make sure that they have uh, access to quality care. So that's why I'm a big proponent of the Connecticut Public Option Bill. You know, it's something that I, I plan on being a part of and working with Senator Matt Lesser and Representative Sean Scalen on. Excellent. Uh, your di- the district is pretty diverse, right? Like it starts in yeah. Hamden. Well, I don't know if it starts in but one end of it is Hamden and then it stretches sort of up into the valley. Uh, go as high as Beacon Falls? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so that, that's, uh, that's, that's a wide diversity of people and I imagine you're out knocking doors in every corner of it. Do you hear yeah. the same thing on healthcare everywhere you go? I, I do. Everyone, uh, um, a lot of a lot of healthcare stories uh, voters have shared with me. Um, people who are on payment plans for God knows how long because of an unforeseen uh, illness that they're now going to be paying for for a very long time. Um, people who have uh, don't have dental coverage or vision coverage, or who have jobs that um, aren't that great. They don't pay that well, but because the healthcare coverage uh, is here, they they tolerate it, and and because it's not portable, they can't take it with them. So. Yeah, I hear lots of stories about healthcare. This is something that we have to solve in Connecticut and in the country. Healthcare needs to be a right, not a privilege, just for a select few. And uh, that's something that is near and dear to my heart. Um, I've got, like I said, some personal experiences I've been through with my family. And I think that we have to make sure that everyone has good, high quality, affordable healthcare. You had said before you were out knocking doors in the primary season. I assume that's going to continue. Um, some candidates aren't knocking doors this time. Uh, what led to your decision to, to continue that route, and, and what kind of precautions do you take? Do you find people are, like, standoffish at the doors because of it? You know, no. We, we waited a little while, and we, we had a, a conversation about whether or not we should do it. And um, this, I decided to try it first as the candidate and, of course, you know, wore a mask, wore gloves, you know, socially distanced. You know, I knocked on a door, I rang a doorbell, and stepped away you know, six, eight, 10 feet away. And what I found surprisingly was people wanted to talk. Um, They were, uh, as long as you're respectful and take the proper precautions, they wanted to talk. And um, healthcare was something that came up a lot, you know. And so uh, we just, I continued to do it and it was a great success. What's uh, sort of unique or different about your district, you think, that sort of sets it apart from from others, for people who are listening around the state? I think my district is really a, a, a microcosm of America. Um, you know, I have just about every kind of person you could think of, uh, working class, middle class, upper class, all different levels of education, all different um, racial categories. Um, and it really is um, an opportunity, I think, to, you know, put people, bring people together to solve the problems that are important to them, whether it's healthcare or jobs or our public schools, you know, making sure that we are, you know, you're, you're really forced to navigate uh, different kinds of uh, people with, with different kinds of backgrounds and, you know, getting them together around a shared vision and uh, bringing them together in a coalition to support you, I think, is both challenging, uh, but it's what we should be doing as elected officials. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, is, it shouldn't be easy. It should be a challenge to be able to bring people together around a shared vision to make their lives just a little bit better. I think, I think one thing everyone 
has a shared feeling about is utilities in this state. Uh, it's a hot topic uh, starting next week. There's going to be another round of public comment on some proposed bills to reform the way Eversource and I assume UI also uh, bill and, and are regulated. Uh, what are your thoughts on that regulation? Well, you know, the storms we had in my district were, were really impactful. A lot of people were impacted. Many people were out of power for many over a week. I, mm-hmm. My family was out for several days. We lost our food. We had a massive tree fall on our property. Um, we also have some of the highest rates in the country, as you know, and um, that's unconscionable to me. You know, we have to hold uh, our utilities accountable. And um, the response from Eversource especially was just simply unacceptable. Um, and I know lots of people who called me seniors who were stranded in their homes uh, for days, people who whose medicine and food, you know, were in danger, um, especially people who are diabetic who had to yeah. keep things refrigerated. So, uh, you know, one thing we have to do is make sure we hold their feet to the fire and make sure that um, they are prepared for storms like this. And they should have been prepared. And I, I intend to do that. Unfortunately, my, my opponent, I think, is in a much difficult position to do that because um, he works for Eversource. He works for Aquarian, which is owned by Eversource. And I just think it's really hard to be able to hold um, someone accountable who, if they sign your check. Um, I don't have that problem. Um, I, I am someone that is going to stand up to make sure that we hold them accountable and make sure that they're prepared for the next storm because literally people's lives depend on it. Uh, I think both last time you ran and this time, your slogan is Cabrera for the people. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. You're not, uh, you know, that that's who you'll be representing. And um, I think we have to question whether there are three senators, in fact, in on the Republican side <laughs> who work for Eversource. And it's, it's, it's an issue. Um, if someone reaches out to you to volunteer, how are you going to put them to work? Well, we need everyone's help. Um, this is going to be an awesome campaign, but you know we have to make sure that we all come together and get this done. We came really close in 2018, and this has got to be the year that we that we do it. Uh, we need help with phone banking. We're uh, going to have people canvassing and knocking on doors, and we're going to teach people how to do that in a safe way. And um, we're also sending people on social media, you know, helping us get our message out there. Um, and if we do those things, you know, we're going to win. Uh, we need everyone's help because it's about time that we have a state senator that is for the people of the 17th district and not just for the select few. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. That's what I will continue to do in this campaign and as the state senator for the 17th. Great. Thank you for joining us here today. George Cabrera, 17th district and Connecticut Senate. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. We now return to Michael Cerulli's interview with Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Talk to me about you keep you mentioned teams a lot, well, whether it's with coronavirus pandemic or, or with the workforce stuff. And I think one of the things I've noticed is you've been able to put together really, really good teams to, to handle all these things, whether it's Indra Nui or, or Josh Jabal. Um, you know, when you approach that as both a biz, former business leader and now as a chief executive of a state, um, what do you sort of look for in when you build a team out? And, and what are you looking for as we move forward with, you know, dealing with this pandemic and setting Connecticut up for the next five years? Well, first of all, um, when it came to setting up our government, I just did not want the same old, same old. The Hartford ecosystem has run this state for a long time. They didn't have a private sector, a bone in their body, and they're sort of a lot of the good old boys. And I think we really paid a price for that. So I wanted to have, um, uh, when I say the most diverse administration in history, diverse in terms of um, ethnicity and gender, but also in terms of public and private and not-for-profit and folks from all over um, the country, just not uh, all over the region. 
And you're right, even then, uh, you know, when it came to say uh, COVID, uh, we didn't have, we have great minds in state government, but folks that who had not necessarily focused on um, epidemiology for the last 20 years. So you're right, I got, you know, Dr. Ko uh, from Yale, I got Ingenui, the head of Pepsi, Josh Jabal, who you mentioned, used to be at IBM. You know, so to bring in a different mix of people who could bring expertise to the table, we didn't have in-house. But, you know, you still have to work with your, uh, you know, all the local players. You've got to work closely with the legislature, explain to them what we're trying to do, why we're doing it. And and because uh, they go out and there are eyes and ears to the community. So there's a balance there. Mm-hmm. And in terms of communicating with the legislature, um, <laughs> I'm sure you're aware there's a bit of a conversation going on there right now about uh, the extension of emergency powers um, on your end. Um I'm wondering, have you sort of listened to those concerns and how you, what views you might have on the concerns raised by the Republican leaders in the legislature? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, co-equal branch of government, uh, we want to be included in the decision-making process, and yet you've got a pandemic where things are changing every day. We can't decide um, whether to close uh, stores you know, during a regular legislative session with uh, 187 people voting on it. Just, that just doesn't work. So uh, very thankfully, the legislature granted me, um, you know, emergency powers going back in March, and we're about to renew that uh, in the next uh, couple of days. But I've tried to be very careful at two fronts. A, keep the emergency powers focused on uh, public health, Um, not when it comes to energy, not when it comes to the economy, other things, public health. And secondly, always try and keep the legislature involved as best we can. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good balance to strike there. And I think, you know, obviously I think most people recognize that that 180, you know, 87 person debate on, you know, how many folks should be inside a restaurant that that wouldn't go too well. Um, So let's move on to the sort of final topic and perhaps the most important topic for our listeners here, which is the election in November. Uh, You were one of the earliest uh, endorsers of Vice President Biden, I think one of the first governors, along with Governor Cuomo, to come out with an endorsement. Uh, Talk us through that process, uh, looking at the largest field ever um, for presidential primary and how you came to support the vice president. Yeah, I supported him the day he announced. And uh, Annie and I made a contribution and we've been very active since. Um, First and foremost, he's a really good man. And uh, he's in this for the right reasons, you know, not private gain, but but public service. If you talk to him, Michael, um, there's not a lot of bluster. There's not a lot of braggadocio. He's a guy that can listen. Uh, Talk about how you put together a team. He'll put together a team of the best and the brightest. Not a bunch of cronies, but uh, I think good people from across the board. I hope he brings in new blood. I know he's been down there for decades, but I I think he's somebody also open-minded to bring in the new blood that we need. And uh, I think it's to some degree a values-based uh, election. What type of uh, America do you want? What are the values you want espoused? You know, when it comes to public health, let's face it, um, the president was um, at best AWOL, at worst telling people to adjust bleach. I mean, it was just, uh, there was no uh, stockpile of things there. It could have done much better. So I think people realize that good government uh, is a serious business. But I think that's going to... Uh, 
really be to the benefit of Joe Biden and at the end of the day, the benefit of our country. Now, have your views changed at all in terms of like, I think all of us, you know, as, as listeners and as voters, we have a certain idea of what makes a good president. Um, has your view of that changed since the beginning of this pandemic where you've had to deal pretty much on a daily or weekly basis with the White House and, you know, rely on, on them for certain resources? Has your view changed in terms of, you know, what you look for in a president, what you look for even in a vice president? Well, I'll tell you what it's taught me is uh, I want Connecticut to be in charge of its own destiny. I don't want to be sitting around um, waiting for the federal government to decide, uh, here's some testing materials you need. Go out and get your own testing. Go out, get your own masks. Go out, get your own gowns. Stockpile yourself. Uh, You're not uh, on your own, but it's better to be prepared. Control the supply chain as best you can. I think more broadly, when it comes to leadership, um, you've got to step up. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got a big legislator, and a lot of folks there, but people look to a governor and they look to a president. They want to know, um, they want to know where and why what you're doing. So I can't, I couldn't operate by fiat. I couldn't say, um, you know, restaurants are going to close. You know, I had to explain to people what we're doing, why we're doing. I couldn't order you. You got to wear a mask or I'm going to arrest you. That's not the way life works. But I tried to explain. I tried to bring the best people I could in to say, look, the mask protects you and it protects everybody you love as well. And I think that's worked. I think so too. Um, All right, I'll ask you a question. Where are you going to be in five years? Where are your <laughs> friends going to be? Let's make it easier. Where do you think your friends are going to be? So I think, um, yeah, I think there's, with everything that's changing uh, in the economy and in society, I think you're exactly right um, that the whole idea that you know, you're going to graduate college and for a lot of us who normally, you know, a year ago or two years ago would have gravitated towards um New York City or Los Angeles or Dallas, Texas or something like that, um, definitely are going to be looking local. I think um, there's certainly a, a draw towards a city like Stanford, a city like Hartford. Um, I think, you know, the era of the mid-sized city is back. I listen a lot to Professor Scott Galloway at the Stern School of Business at NYU, and he, you know, drives that point home all the time that the era of the mid-sized city is back. And if you're looking for great mid-sized cities, you come right here to Connecticut to to find them. Um for me, I want to go to law school, so that sort of changes the equation a little bit, um, because you know I'll be looking to go somewhere for for uh, to get that degree. So, um, but yeah, after that, uh, who knows? <laughs> um, maybe uh, Mike, we got a lot of lawyers out there. We got a lot of lawyers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Seriously, I got to tell you, um, I'm champion for our cities. Our our cities got hit hard over the last generation, and your state's never great unless your cities are great. And I think the idea of a 150,000-person city with a great schools, a transportation hub, so maybe it's easy to get to New York or Boston that once a week if you have to. Otherwise, even if you have a little backyard, but it's got to be lively. That's what I love about the restaurants and the clubs and some of the things that help uh, a small city have a lot of the fun that a big city is always identified with. Yeah, yeah, and I think that brings up another point. I know we're sort of hopping topics here, but transportation and infrastructure. Um, you mentioned before, you know, bringing Wi-Fi, bringing broadband and 5G in, um, which I think also plays to a lot of, you know, issues with equality and the response to COVID-19. Um, what What's the sort of state of play? How has the, you know, obviously we were talking a year ago about, you know, tolls and, 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 and fixing our roads. And, and now that folks aren't driving as much, maybe we were thinking more about, you know, public transit and even how that has to be reimagined. What's, have your views and thoughts sort of changed on, on transportation infrastructure? One thing I found out, Michael, is everything is old in Connecticut. (laughs) All of our infrastructure is old. So I want to have the most modern telecommunications in the country. 
I can do that at relatively little cost. We're sort of dense. Like I said about Wi-Fi and all the town squares, 5G is key. Uh, our transportation, you know, it takes longer to take the train from New Haven to New York today than it did uh, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I'll tell you something else, and you tell me whether this is permanent or not. Um, nobody's riding the train yet. Yeah. Most yeah. car traffic has come back. You're by yourself. You're in your car. You can clean it. You're, you know, you feel safer there. I'd say um, maybe 20% of the train traffic has come back. And when it comes to Stanford, New York, uh, only 10% has come back. People just don't feel comfortable taking that train in the city. And maybe that's permanent. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be interested to see. I think there's some other like, you know, ride share too. Folks are, are less willing to do that. Um so I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, where we move in terms of the transportation, because obviously it was in w- at one point trending in towards the direction of more public transit, um, which is better for the economy, better for the environment. Um, and now I think it's probably trending away from that, which, you know, we'd have to address. Um, and <laughs> I think uh, uh, finally here on sort of a, f- a fun topic, uh, something that was floated during the this whole crisis has been potentially Connecticut temporarily at least getting a Major League Baseball team uh, <laughs> to come play in Hartford. <laughs> Uh, well, any update on that? Any any possibility of, of folks? Well, who... you remember Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah. Um, Canada did not want major league teams flying into Toronto to play baseball. They thought we were infected and they were less infected. Mm-hmm. They maybe were right. So then the Blue Jays are trying to find a place to play um, here in the States. And when um, I, I guess it was Pittsburgh said no, I called up the head of the Blue Jays. I said, have you thought about Hartford? We got this amazing yard good stadium. You'd love it. And it's a uh, you know, 20 minute drive to Hartford Airport, you can fly anywhere you got to. But uh, they were already booked at uh, their minor league stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to have major league uh, soccer. I'm told we're negotiating right now to see if we can get a team here, at least for the interim, which I think would be a, a good deal, meaning just during uh, COVID because they can't play at home. Otherwise, I'm afraid we're a smaller market. So um, I'm not positive you're going to get an NFL football team here. John Rowland offered up billions to do that. That didn't work. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've got the greatest college basketball program in the world here. So that's exactly. Yeah. No, that is exactly right. And that's where a lot of our pride is. And uh, look, we're not doing much football this fall, but I'm really hoping, I fingers crossed, we'll be back for basketball this winter. Yeah. And I remember <laughs> one of the things I vividly remember last year was, you know, friends of mine who know I'm interested in politics and do a lot of work with the party. And I did work on, you know, volunteer work on your campaign, <laughs> sending me selfies with you at Rensselaer Field last year at one of the first tailgates <laughs> you, would, you were visiting there. That's me. Hey, can I just tell... Um, Young people here, um, get involved. Uh, yeah. I don't mean just knocking on doors for you know whoever your favorite candidate is, but uh, we we really need. Um, and I know everybody says when I graduate and I go to law school and I go to Washington D.C. and that's cool and Obama's there and stuff. Um, I think about state government. You can make an enormous difference in state government. I know Hartford and Trenton and Albany may not sound like the hottest ticket in town. But it's extraordinary, the young people I run into in Hartford, the difference they're making, how much responsibility they get. And by the way, we really, we really need you. And if the young people want to help out now as interns, we'll, we'll find ways to make that work. I, mm-hmm. um, I think we've had a great conversation here today. Uh, I want to thank you for, for joining us. I think I'm going to see you around because you're everywhere, which I love. And uh, I look forward to seeing you at one of those Husky games really soon. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely make it happen. So Governor Ned Lamont, the 89th governor of Connecticut, thank you for joining us on the podcast and, and keep up the great work. 
What a great conversation with Ned Lamont. Uh, you guys hit on a lot of bases there, although I guess you were talking about other sports, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Soccer, football, basketball. I don't think we had a chance to talk about baseball, but uh, yeah, great conversation, um, touched on a wide range of topics. And I want to, again, thank the governor for joining us, thank his team for helping us set that interview up and also thank George Cabrera for joining us. And so I think uh, Dave, you and him talk about ways to get involved. So folks, you heard me say it two weeks, two weeks ago, last week, it's crunch time. Let's get out there. Let's do what we can to volunteer. And by the way, if you have any uh, ideas for podcast guests, you can tweet us at CT Dems on Twitter and we'll take a look and see if we can fulfill some of those requests. We are at CT Dems on Twitter. We are at CT Dems on Instagram and Facebook.com slash CT Democrats. You can find us uh, also at ctdems.org. Check out our candidates, check out the volunteer opportunities, and check out next week's episode of Kineticrats, the CT Dems podcast. Mm-hmm.